0: today. We're going to be back at Genesis 41. The last time I preached, we exposited all of chapter 41. That's 57 verses, if you're keeping track at home. It's a lot of verses. It's a long chapter. However, I also told you last time that I was reserving the right to come back through a second time and address some of the overarching theological themes that I didn't have time to do last time. And that's what we're going to do today. So three major theological themes that come out of this chapter that I didn't get to address last time. I didn't get a chance to address the first time we went through chapter 41. And in my mind, there's just uh, too much meat left on the bone to move on to chapter 42. So today we're going to take another dive into chapter 41 to kind of bring out at least three more theological themes That are inherent to the text. So if you want to turn there, that's fine. I'll give you the three major themes. They are probably not going to be alien to you because they pop up in Scripture and other places as well. Here's here's the overarching theological themes that we're going to see today. Number one, God chose you in spite of you, not because of you, which uh, you heard this, if you were here for equipping hour this morning. Pastor Justin did a great job of touching on that as well. God chose you in spite of you, not because of you. Number two, as a Christian, this world is not your home. And we're going to see that in the life of Joseph. Joseph becomes the most exalted man, the most powerful man in a very pagan, powerful culture. The most powerful culture, the most wealthy culture in all of earth history up to that point. You, you might be able to see the parallels Christian and yet in all of that he says this is the land of my affliction he does not call it his home he is aware even in all of that that at the height at the best it could ever be it's still not his home he is looking for something else a city whose builder and foundation is God and number three for the Christian the problem of evil is really no problem at all. We're going to get in. We're going to see that, of course, Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's a theme that we see throughout Scripture, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it today, get a little bit deeper into it, okay? So those are the three big overarching themes we're going to touch on that came out of Genesis 41 that I didn't get a chance to last time. So if you want a more full exposition of Genesis 41... It's up on the website. We did it a month ago. So, all right, before we get into all of that though, let's pray and let's ask God for His guidance. Lord, we pray you'll show us great things from your word today. Lord, I ask you'd use me as a mouthpiece today to edify and encourage your people through the truth of your word. Lord, I ask you'd let my preaching and teaching be accurate to your word and to your spirit. Speak through your word today for the building up of your people and the advancement of your kingdom. We ask that you transform us and renew us by the power of your word. May everything that is said and done today bring honor and glory to you, Lord, and to you alone. For you alone are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' holy name we ask. And all God's people said, <coughs> Amen. All right. I am in the interest of time, usually I... Give a kind of a recap of what I did last time to set the stage for what we're going through in the interest of time I'm not going to recap. I'm just going to jump back into chapter 41. Okay First point that I did not get a chance to really get into last time Point number one that was god chose you in spite of you not because of you In spite of you, not because of you. And the reason I'm going to get into this is because we're going to see... At this point, we see a contrast between two different men. Remember, in chapter 38, we spent an entire chapter talking about a guy that at the time it seemed like you're just kicking a rabbit trail. Why is this here? Chapter 38 spends an entire chapter talking about Judah. And it's not talking about how wonderful Judah is. That entire chapter is pointing out how deeply flawed... And failed, this guy is. And it just seems like it's weird. It's out here. Why are we even talking about Judah? I thought this narrative was about Joseph. Well, spoiler alert, this narrative is not about Joseph either. That seems strange. But it's true. Chapter 41 is where we find the climax to the story of Joseph. I started making a PowerPoint so I could show you. I wanted to show you Freytag's Pyramid. If if you're not aware, if you're a book lover like me, or maybe you're a theater person, or something, you're you're familiar with the concept of plot, right? And Freytag's pyramid is this graph, basically, that shows you the plot summary for any good narrative, right? You start out with exposition, and then you have this, you know, this this incident, and, and then it's rising action, right, where all the tension is building, and then we come to the climax of the story, right. If you're a if you're a theater lover or if you're a movie lover it's it's the big fight scene, right? We've been waiting for it. You can tell what kind of movies I like, can't you? Fight scene. I like finding Nemo. Well, that, it might not be a fight scene there. But the climax, all the all the tension is built up and you have this big huge moment where that tension is basically uh coming to a head and then you have the falling action and then the resolution or the denouement if you're a big theater person, right? Well, this is the amazing thing about God's word is it is divine literature. It has those things, and yet it has them in such a magnificent way that we're going to see today, on the one hand, Genesis 41 is the climax of Joseph's story. But in the overarching meta-narrative of, of the Genesis record, it's not. It's just an inciting incident. That's interesting. <clears throat> It's setting us up. All right. One more thing just kind of as review. Remember, remember I told you that Genesis is originally it's not just one long narrative. It's actually ten different what's called taladots that are all put together, right? And I know that's a big, that's a big word. So if this final... T- I told you the 10th Talmud we got into starting in chapter 37. And all of the rest of the chapters are this final piece. Right? And the question is, if this is not actually about Joseph, who's it all about? And every smart aleck in the room, I know, is raising their pinky up to their lips. It's all about Jesus, actually. And I mean, you know, in one sense, you're not wrong. It is. But, but physically... Who is it? Who does the book of Genesis say that this last piece is actually about? What patriarch is it centered on? Because it's actually not centered on Joseph. Even though Joseph is a major player, a major character, it is not the Tulledoth. This is not the the record of Joseph. It's the record of someone else. And I'll give you a hint. We covered it in chapter 37. So remember, what is the Tuladoth? Remember... Record of how certain people or things came to be. Here's what chapter 37, verses 1 and 2 say. I'll give you the intro again. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. This part of the story is not actually centered around Joseph. Joseph is a major player in this story precisely because he is one of the sons of Jacob. Well, what does that have to do with the plot? Oh, it has a lot to do with the plot, actually. Even though Joseph's a central character to the narrative, he is not meant to be the main character. It's about Jacob, and there's a specific reason for that. The final tuladoth, this final piece in the book of Genesis is actually about us finding out who among Jacob's children is going to carry on the blessing after him. Who is going to be the designated bearer of God's promised seed. And there's something very interesting that we get to see in chapter 41. Because by every account of man, who should it be? Joseph. He is obviously, he's the obvious choice, right? I mean, Joseph is a man of proven faithfulness and character. We've seen that now for three chapters. He's the firstborn son of the favorite wife of Jacob. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of honor. He's a man of character and honesty. He's a very intelligent, learned man. He is skilled in administrative duties. Every house that he leads Literally, every house that he leads prospers greatly. He is well known throughout all of Egypt. He's dignified. He's wealthy. He's a man of great stature. He is the obvious choice. And God does not choose him. That doesn't make sense to me. And it probably doesn't make sense to most readers of the biblical narrative Unless you look at it from the eyes of eternity. If anyone could have ever been chosen by God for anything through their own earthly merit or pedigree, it was Joseph. None of us stands up to his measure. I mean, have you been imprisoned for 13 years wrongly and still not sinned over it? Have you? Have you been in prison for 13 years and still blessed those who imprisoned you? Looked out for the good of those who falsely accused you and then abused you? No. I haven't either. Probably, if you or I were in that same situation, we would be praying, God, please take these thoughts from my mind, because right now I'm plotting on how to kill these people that falsely accused me. But that's not what Joseph does. No. And yet in all of that, Joseph is simply an early typology of Christ. He is not the Christ, nor is he even the bearer or the carrier of his seed. Who would God choose, choose instead of Joseph to be the carrier of his seed? Who would God choose? Judah. 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 We spent an entire chapter talking about how flawed this man is. Right, The the same guy that has an entire chapter of Scripture dedicated to showing his flaws, faults, and failures, that's who you're going to choose? If you want to read about that later, that's chapter 38. Why in the world would God choose Judah? But You see, God is showing a very important lesson to his people here, and it's an important lesson that he's going to have to repeat over and over and over and over. Moses repeats it to the children of Israel. Joshua repeats it to the children of Israel. Jesus repeats it over and over and over and over and over again. And what is that message? What is it that's so important for his people to know? It's this. God does not choose you based on your inherent righteousness or your goodness or your wisdom or your qualifications. If he did, Joseph would have been the obvious choice. Instead, he takes a dirty, wretched, broken sinner and he changes him. He takes a man who's well aware of his own faults, who's well aware of his own flaws, his own shortcomings, and he works in that wretched man's heart to change and renew him and to make him something different. He doesn't choose the man who thinks of himself as high and good and godly already. In fact, that's why Jesus rejected most of the Pharisees and the scribes of his day. No, instead, God finds a man or woman who is painfully aware of their own unworthiness, and he chooses them in spite of their unworthiness. He doesn't choose them because they're worthy. They're not. Judah is not worthy. In case you're wondering, he's not even close. Well, then why would God choose him? Because God is good. And we are not No, we are base, lowly, weak, despised. Why? Why would he do that? Why would the king of all creation, who can choose anybody that he wants to, why would he do that? I saw the news this past week, or maybe it was two weeks ago now, where Nick Saban retired. And the entire sporting world was, oh, my goodness, can you believe? This is the greatest coach, greatest football coach there's ever been. And I thought to myself, really? No, haven't you seen? Look at, all the, look at all the victories this guy's had. He has had a lot of wins. There's no doubt about that. But he's also got a massive budget, the best facilities. He gets the best picks every year. That's what makes you a great coach. What if Nick Saban had to go choose the guys that couldn't make the high school team instead of the five-star college recruits? He had to put a team together with that. Can you win with that? You know what that would show if you could? Boy, it would show how good a coach you were. Hey, you know what God will do? God will choose the base and dejected and despised, lowly and weak, and he will do his work through them. To glorify himself why would God choose Judah why would God choose you my friend why would God choose me it certainly wasn't because of my pedigree or all of my wonderful qualifications I didn't have a lot of them I mean when he chose me you know he was she cho- was cho- choosing a guy that was so good he was a drunk and a dropout and a you know it's hard to get good grades even in school if you're not in class or when you are in class you're still drunk from the night before. Okay, it's not like I was lining up and Jesus was like, "Oh, this Paul guy. Man, how could I pass him over? He's just he's just so good. I can't do this without." I have literally heard Christians say things to that regard. Well, you know why God chose you? He just saw what you could do for his kingdom. You're so talented. You're in, such a power of, you're in such a position of power and authority. Um, that is not why God chose you. That's the opposite, actually. God did not save you so that he could make a big deal out of you. He did not save you because you're a big deal. He saved you so that you could make a big deal out of him. Why would the king of all creation choose these people who are so utterly unworthy um, for humility's sake? Because when he chooses a man or woman, he does it for his glory, not theirs. He doesn't want you getting the wrong impression. He loves you, obviously. But it's not his honor to serve you. It's your honor to serve him. Consider what 1 Corinthians says. 1 Corinthians 26-31 to 31 says this. 1 Corinthians 26-31 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that, here it is, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 30. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast only in the Lord. Why does God do it that way? He, is, he will not share his glory with any man. Side note real quick. Notice that uh, verse 30 says why you're in Christ. Because of who? Because of him you're in Christ Jesus. Just Not because you were so wise or so good. Back to the point, though, God did not choose you because you are such a great man or woman. He didn't choose you because you were so noble or wise or powerful or wealthy famous or dignified no he chose you just like he chose judah in spite of you not because of you he chose you in spite of you why did god choose to save and transform paul wilson it was not because paul wilson was so wise or wonderful or loaded with talent or any of that because i'm not no instead he chose to love the unlovely why would god do that because he's good and we're not. And I thank God for that. He chose us in spite of us, not because of us. Point number two <clears throat> that we're going to get out of this. Turn with me to the end of chapter 41. We're just going to read three little verses. There's just so much here. I basically had to go over it last time. And now I want to really spend some time on it and pull, out, pull this out. Go with me to chapter 41, verse 50. Verse 50. Genesis 41, verse 50, says this. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore them to him. That's his wife. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Manasseh, by the way, is derived from the Hebrew word nasha, which literally means to forget. What is he saying here? Joseph is saying, I suffered because of these brothers in my own home. I suffered because of my people. I suffered because of God's people. And I have chosen to forgive them. I'm beyond that. I'm not taking vengeance. And that's a big deal because Joseph is going to have a chance if he wants to in these upcoming chapters. If he wanted to take vengeance, he had every opportunity. He was the highest man, the strongest, most powerful man in the strongest, most powerful culture of the earth. And people are coming to him for food. All he has to say is, sorry about your luck, head home. He won't do it. You don't understand, though. He's been hurt. That's the excuse I hear all the time from supposed Christians who haven't been in church in 15 years. So I got hurt there. Did you? I'm sure you never hurt anybody, though. Well, it's, it's, it's okay then, right? It's fine for you to just, in your mind, take vengeance. Joseph says, no. I've let that go. God has made me forget. He has made me to forgive Those brothers of mine that hurt me. Christian, can I suggest that maybe you need that too? Have you been hurt by those brothers of yours? Have you been hurt by other Christians? If you haven't, you just haven't been in church very long. And I promise you haven't been in ministry. (laughs) The people that hurt you the most will be the people that you love the most. The people that will hurt you the deepest will be Christ's people. You know why? Because even at their best, they're still sinners. And, spoiler alert, even at your best, you still are as well. Joseph is showing us. I'm, for, I'm giving that up. I'm letting that go. He hasn't forgotten who he is, though. And he has not forgotten who God is. It's is very interesting, this... this This name that he's giving his sons, actually both of his sons. He's in a pagan land, in a pagan culture, where he has been so highly exalted, and yet he still gives a Hebrew name to his son. Now you would think, listen, he is married to the highest priestly line in Egyptian culture. It would be expected that you would name your children along those lines. Remember, Pharaoh gave him a new name right and yet he doesn't he is going to make sure that his son can never forget his heritage he's saying in essence to his son son you may be in this culture but don't get it wrong you are not of this culture he's setting a precedent in his home as well gentlemen you might want to take note here how so how's he setting a precedent in this egyptian culture people were named after the god that they served In fact, that's a common trait. It's a common naming convention among all cultures throughout all time. People commonly name their children to reflect what's most important to them. I have a friend of mine who's a big baseball guy. Guess what his first son's name became? Easton. So, of course, I had to let him know. I was like, oh, where'd you get that name at? Why? Well, it's actually a reflection of what's the big thing in his heart. Ah, Baseball's to die for I'll name my son Easton. Joseph, you may notice something about the names around the people of Joseph, right? Joseph served a man named Potiphar. And then he marries the daughter of a priest named Potipharah. That's weird. Why are those two men's names so linguistically similar? Because Potiphar literally means devoted to the sun. It's a reference to the Egyptian sun god Ra. Potipharah literally means devoted to the sun god, Potiphar-Ra. The worship of Ra, the sun god, was centered in the Egyptian city of Heliopolis. By the way, the name Heliopolis literally means city of the sun. So there's a very important temple in Heliopolis dedicated to Ra. And Potipharah, that's Joseph's father-in-law, was the high priest of that temple. By the way, the priests of On, which he was one of the priests of On, that's what he's, how he's described, the priests of On were renowned, renowned at this time for being the most well-learned men in that entire culture. They were smart. They'd done a lot of reading, a lot of studying. That was, very, that was not a very common thing in that day and age. They were learned men. They were also commonly thought to be prophetic seers. So when Pharaoh gave the daughter of Potipharah to Joseph as a wife, he was also showing the Egyptians, hey. This guy, Joseph, is well-learned, and he's a prophetic seer. It only makes sense he should be married into this, this line. But as a man living in Egypt married to the daughter of the most important priest of the entire land, it would have been expected that he would name his sons accordingly. However, he doesn't. He gives them Hebrew names. He stands in the face of the most powerful pagan culture of his day, and he says, as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. We're not going to serve this culture. We're not going to serve this pagan land. We are not in a land that is our home. Let me tell you another incredible thing about this scene. I think it's just interesting. Um, Joseph's wife is named Asenath. That's an interesting word because it can actually have two meanings. Asenath can mean she who belongs to her father. And that's probably what he had in mind when he named her. But you know what else it can mean? It's very interesting. It can also mean she who belongs to the Creator. Now, I like to think that through her marriage to Joseph, perhaps she actually came to know and love the Creator. Is that true? Can I prove that? I don't know. But I hope to see her one day in glory. Will I? No idea. But I think it's interesting nonetheless. I think it's interesting that those two boys grow up to know the Lord even though they've grown up in a pagan land. It's interesting to me that they can grow up in a pagan land, in a pagan culture, with a dad who's at this very high position in this pagan land and culture and come to know the Lord. 52, verse 52. What about the second son? The name of the second son Joseph called Ephraim. For, he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Notice that he calls Egypt the land of his affliction. He knows Egypt's not the promised land. He knows no matter how exalted he is, Egypt is not his home. It's not the land of his fathers or of God's promise. And unfortunately, a lot of times the way we tell the story of Joseph, it's like that's the pinnacle. Like that's what you strive for. Hey, son, if you do everything right... and you know you're always honest you can be the second most high guy in the most pagan of all lands i mean is that is that the goal well joseph didn't doesn't seem that joseph saw it that way anyway it's the land of his affliction christian let me tell you this i don't care what land you live in i don't care how wealthy or powerful the culture is I don't care what comforts you might enjoy because of where you live. This world is not your home. This is the land of your affliction. For the Christian, this is the part of eternity that will be the worst. That's great news. This is the land of your affliction. You know what Hebrews chapter 11 says about Jacob and the other patriarchs? It says, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of that same promise. Here it is. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He didn't, he didn't go to Egypt because he thought that was his home. No, he was on mission. He was there to do a job. He's there on mission, son. I, listen, we should be too. This place you live is your mission field. It's not your home. You're on mission. Ada is not that city. Stratford is not that city. As much as I love Stratford, Latta is not that city. Some early Christians were shocked to find out that Rome was not that city. This isn't the eternal city? No. Of course not. This is not your home. You're an alien here. You're a foreigner here. The world is not your home. There's only one eternal city. It is not Rome. It's not America either. I really want to get into that. I'm not going to. I think we are at the very tail end. The guy, yeah, I guess I am. We're at the tail end of this. I can't help it. Can't help himself. We are, we're, we're watching the dying breaths of a once great nation and culture. I don't know, I've seen a lot of, you know, memes and posts and stuff People like the end of the world is rapid. I don't know if that's true, maybe I mean, I don't know if Armageddon is rapidly approaching But I'm pretty sure Amerageddon is, you know This is not the city of God In its best day, it's not There is a city of God, it's not here We're here on mission Joseph knew that about him, he's there on mission This is not my home In fact, when he dies, he's going to tell him, hey, someday, take my bones and get them home. This ain't my home. There may be things you admire or love about the place you live, and I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. I hope the Lord gives you a heart for the people that you're around. But don't hold on to it too tightly, Christian. It's not your home. If you are Christ's. You are a stranger and foreigner to this world. That does not mean that you should therefore be unplugged from this world. I'm not advocating for pietism. Well, the world is not my home, so let's just let it go to hell in a handbasket. That's not what I'm saying either. That was the major problem with the Puritans. Hey, let's not get involved in anything that has to do with culture. We'll just be in the church. Man, the culture's going to hell in a handbasket. Well, we better find another place. No, I'm saying we should be involved. Joseph was involved. You should be involved as well. But still, at the end of the day, you have to realize this world is not your home. You're just passing through. I'd love to spend more time on that. I really would. I know you know I would. But we can't. Point number three that's pulled out in this passage and touched on. I want to bring out, sometimes it's called the problem of evil. It has to do with God's providence and what, what philosophers call the problem of evil. I'm not going to exhaust this topic. I'm not even going to hardly scratch the surface. I'm sure I'll end up having to do an equipping hour, maybe even two, to really get into some of the issues that are brought up with this. But I do want to make you at least aware of it and give you some things, some handles to take into this, all right? Having said that, chapter 41, we see God vindicated in in a certain way. Joseph would tell his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, right? Right? That little statement has a profound impact on the way we view the biblical doctrine of providence and what theologians and philosophers like to call the problem of evil. Joseph confesses that the same action that his brothers meant for evil, God used for good. Romans 8.28 echoes that same thing. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are the called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. Yes. Well, I can't see that. I know. But if you have a long enough time span, you will. We, we talked about this. This past Wednesday, I was actually praying about whether or not to delve into this topic today. I was like, God, should I get into that or should I just leave it alone and you know, worry about it another time? And, uh, and Justin comes along Wednesday morning. He's like, hey, can you fill in for youth group tonight? And I'm like, sure. And whether you realize it or not, by the way, the youth group's been going through a video study called the Road Trip to Truth. And Pastor Justin stumbled across it a while back, and uh, he, he got it. And he's like, I'm going to watch this, see if it's any good. He watched it. And he's like, this is really good. I think we should take the youth group through it. So we go through it. I, I'll be honest with you. I'm very impressed by what I've seen. And part of what I've been very impressed with was seeing the kids that we have back here, the youth that we have back here, interact. I don't know if you know it, but we've got some deep thinkers in that group. We've got some sharp kids in that group who have some very good, very pointed questions. I I loved it. So, of course, me being me, I'm stopping the video every 90 seconds like, let's talk about this. Right? Look, go to this passage. Come on. Like, I don't, I don't know if he's going to, I don't know, I don't know if he's going to talk about it either, but we're going to talk about it because the Bible talks about it. Come on, right? Poor kids. Like, just, just let the guy talk. Let the video go for three minutes, Wilson. And me. I can't. But I'm praying about should I get into this or not, right? And uh, after I left Wednesday night, I was like, yes, Lord, your servant hears. And I'll talk about it. So what is this problem of evil? You've probably heard it formulated this way if god is so good then why does x Why does this bad thing happen? Why does my son have cancer? Why did my dad die young? Why did my girlfriend leave me my boyfriend leave me? Why did the tornado kill all those people? Why did that mudslide happen? Why did this why did that why did all these bad things happen if god's so good How come there's bad? That's you know In a nutshell, that's it summed up. If God's so good, why are are these bad things out there? Well, Let me give you a few things to think about. Number one, if you are an unbeliever and you're trying to use the problem of evil as like cannon fodder to shoot down against God, like I could never serve a God like that. He's evil. Your worldview can't even justify the concept of evil. You're literally irrational. It's one of the speakers on the the video thing said that. He's like, the, the reason I, I think this is a really poor argument is because ultimately it's irrational. It doesn't make sense. If, if, you're, if you're an atheistic worldview or a secular worldview, you cannot – you have no basis or bounds. You have no objective standard to even say what evil is. The very best you can say is, well, I don't like that, to which we could just respond, who cares? To the clear-thinking Christian, the problem of evil is really no problem at all. It's not a problem It's answered very clearly in the scriptures However, the answer is not what the unbelieving world wants to hear And so a lot of times we as christians we shy away from that because we know if I tell them the real truth on this They're going to be offended Well, guess what? Let them be offended I'm, not don't try to offend them. Don't try to offend the unbeliever obviously right but The truth of the gospel is offensive. And this is actually part of that. Part of this that's going to be offensive to people is God controls it all. He sends calamity. In fact, we see that in this passage of Genesis. Who sent the famine? God. The biblical record does not say this famine just snuck up on Egypt. God sent it. That's evil. Is it? It's evil for God to do whatever he wants to do with his own creation? I have bad news for you. Every single person, save one, that has ever walked the earth is a sinner who is deserving of judgment. It's not evil for God to send judgment on sin or sinners. It's not evil for God to send famine to a pagan culture that is doing its best to reject him. And you think i'm talking about settings the word evil can have lots of different connotations And i'll be honest with you when you really get into this like deep into this You really have to be careful at how people parse out the terms Because evil can be a term that people basically Usually people use the term evil to mean something. I don't like It's evil. What's evil about it? Well, it hurt my feelings <laughs> Okay, well that doesn't mean it's evil. It just means you didn't like it Okay It uh, it hurts people's feelings When they're a murderer and the judge says you're going to prison That doesn't mean it's wrong There's natural evil Tornadoes, disasters, disease There's moral evil That's that's the kind of evil that's in us Wickedness of your flesh, sin, transgression Third, there's supernatural evil Like demonic evil Fallen spirit beings who are highly skilled in their wickedness. They've been plying their supernatural e- on evil on every generation since creation. The fourth category of evil is eternal evil. I'm not going to delve into all of that. I will say this. Eternal evil, I don't know if you've thought about this or not, is never going to be destroyed. What do you mean it will never be destroyed? It will never be destroyed. Eternal evil will exist in eternal hell. Hell is where God is is not supplying mercy or grace. Hell is where the righteousness is not. Where his holiness is not on display. It's where evil is, and evil's there forever. In terms of John MacArthur, I think he got it right. Because those who occupy hell will be punished and tormented forever, and they will think of it as evil, and it is actually righteous, good, and true. So we must concede this. Evil is real. It's not just something that appears. Not, well, it appears to be evil, but it's not really evil. No, there, there is real evil in the world, because there is real sin in the world. And real sin brought in real evil with it. It's very much a part of our experience on this earth. But why? That's the question. Why? right? And, and we often will say, well, God gave Adam and Eve free will. They rebelled against Him. They brought in evil. And that has had incredible consequences. And that's true. But then you could always make the retort, well, then why did God give him that? Why did God even make it available? And you, you could even say this. You could say, well, it was actually Satan. Oh, okay, but God created Satan. So then the question, basically, in the Christians, it, it comes back to the Christians' lap. How in the world can this be? And the Armenian wants to get God off the hook, basically so the Armenians say, well, God didn't know, but he, or he, he knew, but he didn't have the power to change. It's not true. We must concede that evil, evil is real. It's a very part of our experience on earth. But why? Why is there evil? One part of the, the reason that there is evil on earth hinges on the fact that God is loving and long-suffering. What? How can God be loving and long-suffering, and that's actually what's... Allowing evil to go on longer on the earth Well, because if god decided to get rid of all sin He'd have to get rid of all sinners Question Do you sin? If you answer yes Then you are a sinner and god would have to destroy you Do you sin if you answer no first john says you're a liar Which means you're a sinner which means god would have to destroy you why? So why do we still have sin? Because he is patiently waiting for the redemption of all his chosen people before he destroys this sinful world. So Second Peter three nine says, it says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He is going to do a work where he reaches all of his chosen people. With repentance. So in one sense, evil exists because God is still at work changing hearts and making saints out of sinners. Okay, so you might say this. Okay, preacher man, that only tells us why it persists. It tells us why it's still here. That doesn't tell us why it is here to begin with. Why does God allow it in the first place? Okay, fair enough. Let's talk about the very beginning of evil. Did evil first come through Adam and Eve? They were tempted by the serpent. So maybe evil first came through Satan? But God made Satan. So did evil really actually come from God? But you see, there's a problem here. When God made all of those creatures, he made them perfectly. <coughs> they were without flaw, they were without failure, they were without sin. So even though he created them, he didn't directly create the evil. But evil exists anyway. So God must have at least decreed it, right? The Word says He decrees the end from the beginning. Yes, that is correct. Why would God do that? Why would He allow evil that He could have prevented? Listen to what our Confession of Faith says. This is from the 1689 London Baptist Confession. God, this is a quote, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably, ordain whatever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby God is neither the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. In other words, he did not force their will to do that. Nor is the liberty or contingency of secondary causes taken away. It's actually established. Goes on to say, Sinfulness proceeds from the creature and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither can be the author of sin nor is ever the approver of sin. All that God decrees and providentially brings to pass is all to the praise of His glory. We'll see if you're familiar with the Baptist Catechism. Why did God create you and everything else? For His own glory. What? Folks, I've got bad news. Some of you have a change in your mind that needs to happen. You are still thinking in terms of Arminianism to think, oh, God's greatest goal is to save as many people as he possibly can. If that were God's greatest goal, I assure you, every human ever would be saved. That is not his goal. I'm not saying he doesn't care about that. He cares about it very much. Obviously, Jesus at the cross shows us that. But his great goal is to reveal himself to his bride. His great goal is to show who he really is to his own special people. His great goal is to show parts of himself that nobody else knows to his own special people. There are parts of God you cannot know except through the context of sin. God's interaction with sin shows us a lot about God. It shows us a lot about Jesus that he is powerful enough to literally destroy and annihilate the same people who are ripping his beard out and spitting on him and smacking him with abusing him. But he doesn't. You cannot know the fullness of God apart from the context of sin. We can't know the fullness of God's justice or wrath if there are no sinners to judge. We can't know the fullness of His mercy and His grace without sin or sinners. In short, it's impossible to know the fullness of God's goodness without the contextualization of evil or sin. And that's something that Joseph, in his 13 years of slavery and imprisonment, got. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I talked with our youth group about this. I said multiple times over the years, Justin and I and probably anybody else that's a Christian that works in education. have had 100,000 conversations with a young man or young woman who's in a relationship with someone they have no business being in a relationship with. And you tell them, you've got to get out of this thing. And then that relationship falls apart and they're crying their eyes out. Why, God, Why? So why does this happen to me? And at the time, you don't say this because you're trying to be loving and kind. It's okay. It's all right. I understand, right? But inside, you're thinking, well, it was your stupidity and sin that got you into this. And this is actually a good thing. One day, you're going to look back on this and go, that's the best thing that happened to me. And that happened to me. I can tell you that from experience. It's impossible to see how bright the diamond shines without the darkness of that black felt background. That's why God still allows evil, yes, and he uses it and handles it sinlessly. And he uses it for his good, for your good, for his glory. He uses it sinlessly. Now one day he won't. Why does he allow this? He has a morally sufficient reason that you're not privy to You will go through hard times. You will go through trials where you're like, I don't understand this god god Why is this happening? Why am I going through this? But if you live long enough You will look back and go wow That's why Some of those you won't understand until you get to glory because you won't have a good enough eternal perspective to see what was really happening But I can promise you this. There will be a day where you will know, yes, in fact, all those things that I hated, the trials that I went through, were actually working. They weren't for no reason. They were not superfluous evil. You are God's bride. He is not putting you through trial for no reason. He is actively working. He is working in you to will and do to his good pleasure. He has a goal, and he's accomplishing that just like the life of Joseph. Why would God put Joseph through so much? Because he's going to save his people through Joseph. And it may be the same for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for choosing to show us your mercy and grace. Thank you for choosing to transform and save us in spite of us. Thank you for reminding us, Lord, that this world is not our home. that Rather, we're living in the land of our affliction. We are, Lord, waiting and looking for the city whose foundations and builder is God. We thank you that at the end of this life, at the end of our journey through the land of our affliction, you will bring us home to be with you in heaven, a land with no sin, no evil, no separation from you forever. Thank you, God, for showing us your long-suffering and your kindness, for being patient toward us even though there's never been a time that we deserved it. Though we deserve your wrath and your righteous judgment, instead... You've taken the penalty for our evil and lawlessness in the person of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that, God. Thank you for showing us grace and mercy and love. Thank you for continuing your work of saving and transforming sinners. We ask, Lord, that you would graciously use us in that righteous work as well. Renew our minds. Let us be people who reflect you. We thank you for it, Lord. And all God's people said, Amen.